Hey there, my name is Janny and I'm the host of What's On Your Mind. I interview guests about their weekly musings and Wikipedia rabbit holes, like toxic beauty standards, or the impact of redlining, or bees. Whatever it is, we'll process it together. We'll all learn a little something and take another step in creating our own stories, all while adding another laugh line to your face. This week's episode is Kyle Nesbeth. Kyle's research interests focus on racism's physiological impact on black women. In this episode, hear Kyle talk about her research, as well as the importance of self-care, especially when you identify so closely with your research topic. Hey, Kyle Nisbeth. Am I saying that right? Nisbeth or is it Nesbeth? It's um, Nesbeth. So like the I and the E are reverse. So it sounds like N-E-S. I'm sorry. I never knew that. Um, yeah. So basically when my grandfather, he lived in Jamaica, they're Jamaican. So when my grandfather was born at that time, they had to report the birth like by going down to the birthing office. My family wasn't born in hospitals. So our last name is supposed to be Naismith. And the person that reported his birth got it wrong. And so now there's a whole branch of the family tree with like the wrong last name, in addition to some funky pronunciations because the origin is nay. So then everyone's like, oh, Nesbeth, even though it's spelled Nesbeth. How do you want me to say your name? It's Nesbeth. I mean, well, that's how... That's why the family pronounces it. Then I will pronounce it the way you want me to pronounce it. Okay, great. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, Kyle Nesbeth, what's on your mind? So this week, um, I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about my dissertation. um, And that's going to be about, I've entitled it The Toll of Black Motherhood. Um, And I don't want it to be seen as like um, so saddening, but I do think Um, especially given a lot of the biological outcomes that we're seeing as it relates to like maternal mortality. Um, Babies are born um, for black mothers, more likely to be born premature, um, lower birth weight, which then gives you a greater likelihood of also um, that child dying, Um, infant mortality is higher. So, you know, that crossed with um, the marches that have been going on. And then you think, you know, everyone who has died is someone's child. So what does that mother feel like? And we've talked about this, I, I think briefly when we were at UNC, this, so this was a while ago, but, um, like when we think about maternal and child health, mothers are generally evaluated by the success of their child and not necessarily just looking at like, what is the health of your mother period? without having it relate to children's outcomes or having it without it relating to like family more broadly or economic yeah. success. Like you're, I never thought about that. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah. And, and motherhood is not just like a, a box that we check. There's a whole um, psychological, biological profile that, that occurs after that child is born and takes their first breath. So I'm really trying to figure out like beyond pregnancy, beyond your reproductive history, like for a black mother, what is it like mentally and physiologically, meaning relating to the normal body functions, like physical and chemical? Um, what is what is your experience going to be like from a health perspective? And there's not a lot of information out there um, in the literature base that can really guide a mother, let's say, if she's trying to think to herself. I know for me, I was like, I first started in maternal mortality. And to be honest, it was just way too heavy. And I started scaring myself. Like, I'm going to die is basically what I kept thinking. Like, Oh, wow. You know, like education can't save you. Your income can't save you. Um, like w- what's going to save me? Nothing's going to save me. And if anything, I'm like, I have so much information 
and I'm just scaring myself to death. So I said, okay, I want to do something that's a little bit less heavy, um, but is still going to be something that would create impact. And I landed on like mental health outcomes for mothers. Mm. Oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> yeah, no, please ask me. I have so many follow questions. Um, so I guess my first just really broad question, and not that this is an interview, but I actually just, I'm inquisitive and I want to know, um, how, what inspired you kind of specifically in this realm? Cause it does sound at least a little bit different of what you were studying in Chapel Hill when we graduated. Yeah. And then when's your dissertation? Like when, when's your defense? So, okay. So, cause I'll answer the defense cause that's easier first. Um, it's not going to be until 2022 is when I'm anticipating this. However, like for me, I'm at the, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel because um, I got to Michigan in 2017. So I was like, well, there's not even a two, you know, in the last two digits of this year. So, and now we're in 2020. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, but just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, wow, I'm only two years out. And if anything, like we're counting down like every day, I'm one day closer to being done. So 2022 winter term. Yeah. Which I also find hilarious that Michigan calls it, we have fall and winter term. There is no spring is like, equivalent of UNC summer term because it's just so cold. They just adjust their season names to right? It's like they don't even. So <laughs> yeah, so for the winter term of 2020 is when I'll be graduating. Um, but what got me into this actually at Spelman, um, I was a public health minor and in, I took a health psychology class at Morehouse College. And one of the videos that we watched, it was a documentary called Unnatural Causes. It's a PBS documentary. The episode in particular was, I want to say it was called When the Bow Breaks. And so the question that they were trying to answer was, can racism be embedded in the body and affect birth outcomes? And so it's like a 30-minute video. But what I took from that, like my sophomore, junior year, I was like, this can't be real. I, I kept telling myself, like, no, racism can't be killing. It is. 100% it is. But in that time, I was like naive, I suppose, thinking like, I can do something. And I, and I think I can do something. But at the time, I was like, oh, I can do it quickly. Like, racism shouldn't be killing babies, um, shouldn't be killing Black mothers. And I want to do something about it. The reason why I kind of veered away from that at UNC was because it was simply a matter of funding. Um, I was being funded for community um, participatory research ethics. And so that's what I did, but that wasn't really like my passion. And so I decided to pick it back up when I went to Michigan as a part of my preliminary exam process. And so I wrote for two weeks, our preliminary exam is like a two week exam. You sit down, you have to answer basically what is the problem in your part one and what are you going to do about it in your part two? And so I wrote, yeah, exclusively about maternal mortality, but it was also during that time where I was like, oh, I can't do this for the long term. Uh, I've done two weeks of this and I am like, although it was very enjoyable to be able to like um, selfishly indulge, even though it's a part of the preliminary exam process, like I could just really just study what I love and what I want to do, but it became so overwhelming, the amount of statistics that I can like um, rattle off um, that I said, no, I need to switch gears. Um, and I have written stuff for Michigan relating to maternal mortality. Um, but I don't, I could, I don't think I could make it a career because it was, it's just so devastating to me, like emotionally. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, that kind of reminds me of people who are in, I mean, different health fields, like, um, 
like physicians, nurses, like sometimes when you see that stuff and also like if you identify too with an element of that, like that's, that could impact, that does not could, that does impact your mental health too, because I mean, you have to find some type of way to separate yourself from that a little bit. Or, I mean, that's, that's a lot that you're having to then internalize every day by then reading something like that. Right. And I, and, you know, also having gone to Spelman when everyone around you is a black woman, people are like, Oh, don't see yourself in the statistics. But I'm like, no, I have a whole graduating class, whole cohorts of people who I can look at and then be like, Oh, well, you know, 25% of the cohort might look like this. And, you know, one in four women might experience this. And so it was very hard for me. Um, to remove myself from my data. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, um, but it's just something to like always in the back of my mind, I think no, and then try and take self-care very seriously, um, especially because, you know, dissertation process is already hard enough, um, let alone like other things you have going on. So I've tried to take self-care very seriously during this process, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I want to go back to also what you, you talked about that documentary. And I remember watching parts of that documentary in our classes actually at UNC. And I remember that's something that I don't really think about that often is the biological actual impact, like what that actually is doing in our bodies. Like we talk a lot about, obviously about psychological, we talk about the social stressors and all that, but the, but the matter of fact is that that stress, it, impacts our bodies. Yeah. So I think there are two, uh, different fields as it relates to like generational, um, trauma, I guess I think the the proper term would be. So there are some people who believe in epigenetics and that stress and trauma can transform your genes. And then, and, and so in many ways people look at it as determinative. Is that a word? Yeah. Yeah. And so then that can be used as a tool against you, um, like policy wise, you can think of insurance companies. And so I think, um, the other school of thought is to say that while it can impact your body, it's not necessarily generational, but what can be generational is like your coping mechanisms. That certainly is something like without, you know, therapy, um, we all have behaviors that we you know, are not great or that we know are antithetical to our healing. And so what is definitely, I think, a concern is that the way you're coping is not necessarily positive, but also with racism, it's an interesting stressor in that um, it's like omnipresent and it's uncontrollable because you're not doing anything to cause this. Um, And in a lot of ways, you can feel like your locus of control it's just, you have none. And so what do you do when you have a stressor that's around you at all times, you never know when it's going to hit you and you feel like you can't control it. So racism as a stressor has just been something I'm trying to also better understand as it relates to motherhood. Um, and so recently what has come up in the literature is this idea of maternal racial worries. And so it differs from parental racial, uh, parental worries generally because it is racially specific. Um, And so it's this idea that all of these worries related to rearing your child um, that are race related, they're going to last you throughout your life because no matter how old your child gets, they're always going to be your kid. And if anything, as you grow, the problems that your child may encounter are becoming more complex and you're going to be less able to 
be there one you're not going to be with your child all the time when your child's 50 you know your child's going to have their own family for example um or when your child's at um away at college perhaps or now they're old enough to go to the store without you they're old enough to ride the bus without you um and so i'm really trying to figure out like what is it yeah essentially what is maternal racial worries how does it operate um over the life course, what occurs with maternal racial worries is it go up, does it go down by certain ages? And so that's something that I'm also trying to kind of tease out as I go along through my dissertation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's cool that you're focusing on, on not just like the infant stage, um, but that you're really looking at the lifetime of a person. Because like you said, at any, t- like looking at our, our protests and the killings, like at any point, a person who dies is someone's child, like you said, so yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. That seems like a good point for a break. Time for some ads. I always like to make sure that the products I buy or the clothes I wear have good practices behind them. When you buy from Serengeti, you support artisans, their families, and ancient fabric-making traditions. By giving 10% of their profits back to grassroots causes, they work to improve lives in their communities. There's a story behind every product they make, so when you wear Serengeti, you are truly wearing a piece of the world. You can get 20% off of every purchase with my code, JannyRad20. That's J-A-N-I-R-A-D-20. Check them out at Serengeti.com. Serengeti, wear the world. Common Good Clay is a polymer clay earring business born out of a love of unique, playful statement jewelry, plus a desire to do good and give back. For each piece sold, 15% is donated to nonprofits advancing social justice. Because at Common Good Clay, we believe that your earrings should not only look good, but do good too. Sales are currently benefiting the YWCA to support their work eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. All of Common Good Clay's earrings are handmade by me, Marisa, in my home studio in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Check out Common Good Clay on Instagram at Common Good Clay or on Etsy at commongoodclay.etsy.com. And now back to the show. So you talked about like therapy and self-care. Like, so how, how are you kind of coping with all this as this is a difficult topic to... Right. And then quarantine has not necessarily made it any easier because you're kind of restricted as it relates to, no, you are restricted as it relates to where you can go (laughs) and what you can do. And, um, as you know, like when I was at UNC, I was lifting pretty seriously and I still do or I was. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that kind of got caught off, cut off to me. I mean, you can do as many at home workouts as you want, but still at home. (laughs) Yeah. And I just feel like I'm jumping around and, and like, that is not how I like to work out at all. Yeah. So I took a month off actually, because, um, I realized my relationship to my fitness goals were really hell bent on me being in a gym. Like I am motivated by being with others, feeling like not not like competition, but like this pseudo thing where like, oh, they're pushing this. Like, let me push a little harder. And at home, you have none of that. Um, You might not even have a mirror. So you're not, you know, there's so many different elements that kind of took away from my fitness experience. And so I actually started just going out Side. I mean, that sounds very simple, but um, one of the things that Michigan is definitely blessed with is like a lot of land um, and a lot of the beauty of Michigan 
comes in the summer months um, because you're able to go out and just the one month of summer. Yeah, or one month of summer. <laughs> like explore. Um, I think they, the slogan is like pure Michigan. But truth be told, I'm like, there's a lot of like land that um, is just accessible to the public. A lot of mm. county parks, state parks, a lot of lakes. You know, I think we're the land of great lake, many lakes or something like that. And so I've made a commitment to like hiking. I mean, and I don't have a job, like a traditional job, right? So I can go out like, 12 p.m., 1 p.m., 3 p.m., 8 a.m., and explore Michigan. But, I mean, I saw this documentary. I don't know if you've seen, I think it's like Uncovered Mysteries or something like that. Unsolved Mysteries? Yes, on Netflix. It just came out. I mean, I could do a whole episode about Unsolved Mysteries. (laughs) (laughs) But no spoilers because I haven't seen this new reboot yet. But I've seen like every single episode when I was a four-year-old child with my sister and my mom. Okay, so there's one of them called, I mean, I'll just give brief so that it won't give it away. Yes, great. But I mean, I know it's probably not a happy ending. No, so there's, (laughs) um, and it's a black male and he's at a party in Kansas in like middle of nowhere, Kansas. Um, And his friends end up leaving him at this party that they describe as being full of cowboys and um like rural white people. And ultimately he never makes it home. And, um, I had just come back from like being out alone. And I kind of thought to myself, like, I, I don't want to let this rob me of my joy, but I definitely need to be just like more thoughtful, I guess. And I hate to say that, but anything can really happen to you. Um, and I'm just out here in the middle of nowhere. Like I don't even have service sort of places trying to enjoy myself. And I don't, I really don't want it to rob me of my joy, but it is kind of scary thinking about like what could happen to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's always an interesting line to kind of navigate. And I, even myself too, I've, I've found myself struggling with that line. Like when you even think of sexual assault trainings, you know, it's like we say, oh, part of, you know, oh, the responsibilities on people not to sexually assault but also it's like, but in the reality that we're in now, I also have to be cognizant of my environment, even though I hate that that is a responsibility I have to put on myself. And that is the system literally working against me. But again, it's that line of at this point, still in our lives, the way that everything is structured and the way we have social relationships with each other, I still have to be cognizant and have that extra Mm -hmm. layer of awareness. Right, right. And I think, too, on top of that, like, one of the things that I've been going back to is I always, you know, being Black in America, especially in the countryside where there's farms, I'm I'm always wondering, I'm like, did my ancestors, like, toil here? And certainly people who look like me did. Um, And it's like, no matter where I am in the U.S., and and that also kind of robs me of joy. Um, cause I know people say like, oh, this could be your ancestors wildest dreams as you sitting here and enjoying this. And I, I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, and then, I mean, back to black mothers, mental health. I mean, the woman, the mother of Alonzo, who's the man who died, um, like she's, you can tell she's very much so stuck still mourning because she's got no, um, justice they still don't know who killed her son and this happened in 2004 I believe 
And so it kind of also harkens back to the same sort of stressors that Black mothers who get killed by police officers are experiencing in that a lot of them get no justice. Um, And then you don't even see justice as it relates to reform or it's just like very incremental reform. It's almost like a pat on the back, pat on the head sort of reform that we receive. Um, And then you still have some politicians and people generally in the media acting like this isn't even a problem. So they erase your pain. I mean, I think that's also part of the experience of racism. Like what is also traumatic, not only experiencing it, is then trying to explain the significance of the encounter to someone else and then also trying to justify why you think it's racism or why you know better yet that it is racism. And then you you receive this extra trauma by trying to get people to believe you. Um, So I think my work with my dissertation has originally was like a question about my own mother, my motherhood, like my future motherhood, what that might look like, what that might feel like. Um, So it's a question about myself and larger question about the community. Um, But it's also like in a hope. I, I have one committee member who's like really pushing for like, what are the clinical, um, implications of this? What are the policy implications of your dissertation? And I'm really trying to think thoughtfully of that because I want there to be some sort of practical benefit to the work that I'm doing. I don't want it to sit on a shelf. I don't want it to sit in a journal that no one can access because it's like $30 for like the regular person in the world who's not connected to a university to see like, um, it's really important for me thinking like, how can I better the world with the scholarship that I have? Because I also know it's like a big privilege to really be paid to like read, write, and think. Yeah. It's essentially what I'm doing. Well, and I like that question of what policies can come out of this because I think a lot of times what happens in these situations, I'm going to borrow this phrase from from Dina from Racial Equity Institute is that we program people to death. Yeah. And like, we don't want, we don't need another program that teaches black mothers how to hope or like how to reach emotional happiness. Like that that is not the solution. That's not the solution or the point of what you're trying to do. It's, it's a much larger system issue. So I, I, I I like that if it's like, I like the, the, what next is looking at the larger. Yeah. And when I wrote um, my preliminary exam, I wrote about cognitive behavioral therapy for mothers who are pregnant um, and then like shortly after they deliver as a means of reducing stress. But cognitive behavioral therapy, I, I do think it might be one of the only individual level um, tools that mothers might have in order to reduce their stress during motherhood. However, it is simply a cognitive reframing of the problems that you're experiencing. So it's almost like tricking your mind. That <laughs> the problems are still- <laughs> Yes. And so I felt really insanely guilty writing about that because I'm like, while this might be a helpful tool, yes, um, we should not be focusing on the people who are experiencing oppression and trying to fix their mindset about experiencing their oppression. We should be like, you know, fixing the root of the oppression. <laughs> Yeah, the root causes of all these things. Like, yeah. like I don't know if you've seen the, you know, you've seen the, like, what's equity, what's equality, and then they have to take, oh, like, the yeah. fence. So, like, you should be taking the fence down. That is what yeah. we should be doing. Kick, kick that fence away. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I even, I think back to, like, oh, there's so many analogies of this. But, yeah, there's the fence. There's the the river. Oh, like, yes. look at Like, look, what's upstream down, versus yeah. downstream. 
And then of, of course, also, I mean, we're talking about academia, but we learned about the health impact pyramid of like, you know, CBT is in that tippy top corner. doesn't mean that it's not effective, but it's, it's the top corner Right. that the bottom is the actual yes. change. The, yeah. Let's change the societal uh, factors. But yes. Yeah. And so I think that's the first time I've talked about the health impact pyramid in three years. <laughs> it's almost like the, like, have you seen like, oh, today's another day. I haven't used Y equals MX plus B, but it's like, <laughs> it almost kind of feels like that sometimes. I mean, I remember when we were learning theories and I'm not going to say their name, um, but one of them was like, oh, and you know, when they're doing program planning, nobody really includes theories, like how we've written them out or like people just piecemeal things together, just to make it make sense or their own benefit. And I'm kind of like, that should not be the culture um, that we have, nor should we just, we should be this cavalier about it. Um, but also public health is very behind as it relates to like new theories. I agree. Um, when was the last one? Like the 50s, 60s? I'm, and they're I all just, really white. <laughs> all of them. Um, I had somebody ask Let's me. Let's just call it out. <laughs> Yeah, I was in a fellowship meeting and somebody asked me um, about the CESD scale. I can't remember what it's exactly referring to, but it, it measures depression. Mm. And she's from sociology and she said to me, do you think this is actually a useful scale for Black people? And my first thought was like, yes, because it's been validated in Black populations. And I'm like, and then I thought about it and I'm just like, okay, well, Kyle, if you as a Black person saw this and you were a lay person, do you think you would really connect with a lot of these things that they're asking? And I really don't think so. Um, yeah, I really don't think so. And, and we were kind of broached the topic of like, what happens when you now are one foot in community, one foot out, because the further I go in academia, the less I'm thinking like a lay person, um, mm. as it relates to like community, the less I am actually representative of the community that I'm seeking to serve. So, I think also sitting with that has been very important. I mean, even down to the, like, I go to the doctors and that um, UH, university health services, they will give you the alcohol screener and then the depression screener. And I'm like, well, I am an academic in public health. So if I don't want to talk to you about any of these things today, the answers will be no across the board. Right. I was actually, that was going to be my question of like, okay, even if we can say, oh yeah, sure. This tool has been validated, you know, with black people, it's like, what, what was the context in the situation in which that validation process occurred? And like, right. who, who was on, who, what, what, what did that situation look like? Who was the one asking the questions? And, and, and just like you said, I mean, sometimes you might be in a situation where you kind of just want to give the answer for whatever that reason is. You want to get out of there, fear, um, of, you know, yeah. retaliation, feeling guilt. Maybe you don't even want to be honest with yourself or right. whatever the reason is. Maybe you're tired of being a research subject and you're just like, I want a GTFO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jenny. This was fun. This was really wonderful. I honestly had a good time. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Subscribe wherever podcasts are found. And of course, rate, review, and share with a friend. Don't forget to check out serengeti.com and get 20% off of every purchase using code JANNYRAD20 at checkout. And check out Common Good Clay at commongoodclay.etsy.com. If you want to learn more about me, you can check out my website, jannyrad.com. That's J-A-N-I-R-A-D.com. And find me on Instagram at jrpwservices. 
Love the podcast music? That's BK Williams. You can follow him on Instagram, Brian K underscore Williams 28. Thanks for listening.